Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're commencing reading at verse 12. So Philippians 2, commencing at verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labour and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord, with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service to all. And as ever we trust that the Lord lay his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible and precious word. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you again, and this evening we are continuing our series of studies in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Uh, for those who haven't been here before, just to mention, Philippi was a Roman colony in northeast Greece or Macedonia, and we read of the Apostle Paul's first visit to that city in the Acts of the Apostles and in chapter 16. Also, we read in Acts chapter 20 of a, a further visit, and there are some scholars who believe that there may have been a third and even a fourth and I expect many of us will associate Philippi as being the place where the jailer and his household were saved. 
when he asks that wonderful question, what must I do to be safe? How we wish that people ask that question more often. And also we know it was the place where the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And it's all that Paul wrote in his epistle to those saints at Philippi for five reasons. First of all, he wanted to thank the saints at Philippi for that gift that they had sent to him. Secondly, he wanted them to know why this man called Epaphroditus, whom the Philippians had sent to Paul with that gift, was now being sent back to them. Thirdly, he wanted them to know more about his own situation at Rome. Fourthly, he wanted to encourage them, to exhort them to unity. And fifthly and finally, he wanted to warn them against the danger of false teaching. Well, in our first study, we considered the first 11 verses of Philippians 2. And when we came to a conclusion, we noted that we would do well to remember what Paul asked of those saints at Philippi. He said this, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And also to remember that our Saviour has now been highly exalted, and that as the scripture says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this evening is our fourth study in this epistle, and we shall be considering the whole of the remainder of chapter 2. And we begin with verses 12 and 13, which read thus. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And whenever we come across a wherefore or a therefore, in the scriptures, it invariably requires us to consider what is before us now in the light of what has just been proposed or proven. And in this case, it's the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, albeit being very God, became obedient unto death, mm. even the death of the cross. Our Saviour humbled himself when he assumed our human nature, and he is the great example that we should follow. Inasmuch as all those who profess to follow him should conduct themselves with all lowliness of mind. Paul addresses the saints at Philippi as his beloved. And we often see this in Paul's epistles, do we not? Paul had a genuine love. For the brethren. And this raises, does it not, a question for us. Do we see our fellow believers as beloved? Do we consider them as beloved? Not just those in our own fellowships, but elsewhere too. 
Now Paul was about to give a directive to his readers and he wanted them to know that he truly loved them and that what he was going to propose was only for their spiritual benefit. And we see that he prefaces his directive by commending their former obedience, their obedience thus far, and trusting that they would follow his guidance now. As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then we have the directive. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now I believe that this is a directive for all believers, for us here this evening, not just for the saints of Philippi, and that it is something that all believers should be doing day by day. I would say it is our business to do this. But before we look at what it means to work out our own salvation, I'd just like to take a moment to tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we have to work for our salvation, or that works themselves can in any way justify anyone. Believers, all believers, are saved through faith in Christ alone. We are justified by faith in the atoning death of Christ our Saviour and nothing else. But we demonstrate that we are saved by the lives that we subsequently live as believers. Our works or how we conduct ourselves subsequent to salvation are evidence, evidence of the fact that we are true believers. And it's this evidence in all our Christian lives to which Paul is referring when he wrote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's about the outworking of faith. Mm-hmm. For faith without works is dead, being alone. We know that doing not from the epistle of James. And so the second of several questions arises. Is it evident from the way that we all live, that we do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that evident? Are we living as believers are expected to live in accordance with the Word of God? Are we all recognisable as the children of God by the way that we conduct ourselves, by the way that we live our lives? Those of us who profess faith in Christ should be Christ-like. And we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want to make it very clear that the Apostle is not saying that we are to fear that we can ever fall away. And thus our lives are lived in a state of uncertainty as to whether or not we are saved. We are secure if we are true believers in the Saviour's love. In our first study in Philippians, we saw from chapter 1, and verse 6 is that we can be confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our trust is not, never can be, never will be in ourselves. Mm. Our trust is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. And we know that none can pluck us from our Saviour's hand or from our Father's hand. So when we see Paul writing about conducting ourselves with fear and trembling, he is telling us to be 
the opposite of those who act in pride and with vainglory. We are to have a reverence for God. We are to have a godly fear. And which of us would not tremble when we consider the holiness of God? Ought mm -hmm. we not to be like Isaiah when he saw the holiness of the Lord and he said these words, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Mm. In Romans 11, verse 20, Paul wrote this, Be not high-minded, but fear. And we too should not be high-minded, but conduct ourselves humbly. But now, having considered first of all how we are to do our work, how we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we come to a portion of scripture telling us that those of us who are true believers have God working inside us mm. by his Holy Spirit. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When we are born again of the Spirit of God, we are indwelt by that Spirit. Paul here reminds the saints of Philippi and ourselves that this is the case, and that we now have help in our fight against our old selves. Where would we be if we didn't have the help of the Spirit of God? Mm. Now before we were saved, we had no desire to live lives pleasing to God. We were dead in trespasses and sins and lived our lives just to please ourselves. We had no desire to please our Creator. Mm. But once a person is born again of the Spirit of God, they are given a new nature, mm. a nature that is Godward, by which I mean that they begin to care about God and the things of God. They want to please God. Mm. They want to live for God. Their whole outlook changes. So another question arises, can we say that the tenor of our lives is to please God? Is that what we want to do, to please God? Can we say that the Spirit of God is so working in us that we want to do of His good pleasure, as opposed to our own good pleasure? Now in our last study in Philippians, we saw that Paul wrote these words, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And now, here we see that he writes, do all things without murmurings and disputing. So, his Paul here still thinking about the relationship of believers one to another, or is he thinking in a more general sense? Well, we have to say that it could apply to relationships between believers, since some of us have been aware of situations where professing believers have been guilty of murmurings and disputations. We know from the Old Testament that the children of Islam in their exodus from Egypt were guilty of much murmuring and that they were severely punished as a consequence. 
But to me, verse 15 of our study this evening indicates that Paul was thinking about the believer's relationship with unbelievers. For he wrote that believers were to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And surely, this is the key verse in our deliberations this evening, since it describes what ought to be the conduct of God's people in every generation. We are to be blameless. We are to be harmless, living in such a way as to not give anyone just cause to find fault with us. So this will not stop people finding fault with us unjustly. I'm reminded here of 1 Peter 2 verses 19 and 20 which tell us this. For this is thankworthy, if a man of a conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults you shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. We are the sons and daughters of God. And we should appear as such to those outside of Christ amongst whom we live without meriting, without deserving to be rebuked. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we will never be rebuked, for we most certainly will be, especially in this godless age in which we live, and in which we should stick out like sore thumbs if we make a stand for the truth. But we should never do anything that would merit being rebuked. Like the Philippians, we live, do we not, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And things are getting worse and worse from day to day. Those of us who are older have seen tremendous changes in our lifetimes, whereby things which were once condemned are now actively encouraged. And we betide any who dare to speak against such evil practices. Paul described the saints at Philippi as those who shined as lights, shined as lights in the times in which they lived. And this raises another question for us. Could we be described as people who shine as lights? In the darkness of our world, do we stand out from the crowd? I'm reminded of something that the Lord Jesus said in his sermon on the mount. He said this, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are to shine as lights in the world. And as we see from verse 16 of our study passage this evening, we are also to hold forth the word of life. Hold forth the word of life. Meaning that we should proclaim Christ as the only hope that sinners have to avoid eternal death. And we can proclaim him by witnessing both in what we say and also by our conduct. Not everyone is called to be a preacher of the gospel, but all of us ought to be 
as the scripture says, ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How much of a witness are we to those whom we meet? Now, it may be that we find it difficult to speak to others, but you know we are all able to invite people to a service where they will hear the gospel, are we not? Paul wanted the saints of Philippi to be good witnesses, and if they were, then Paul would rejoice, not just in the present, but also on that great day when Christ returns. He wrote this, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labor in vain. We all rejoice when we hear of the salvation of a sinner, do we not? Only recently, uh, when I heard that my oldest grandson uh, had been saved, made a commitment, uh, I've been praying for him ever since he was born and, and before he was born. And I rejoiced at that, and you may have had similar experiences. And we know that the Lord Jesus said these words, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. But you know, I think here that Paul is referring specifically to his own work as an evangelist, to his own work. And to that judgment day, the day of Christ, on the which he would have to give an account to God of his work for him. And we see this referred to in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 to 15, which read as follows. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 to 15. Now he that planteth, and he that watereth, are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour. For we are labourers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man Built upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, you know, these verses are very often quoted in connection with the judgment of individuals, but if you examine them closely, you'll see that they're primarily concerned with those who are given the responsibility of building up God's people. Now, as we have seen previously, Paul wasn't sure what the future now held for him. But he was well aware, was he not, of the likelihood that one day he might be required to pay the ultimate price for his service to God. And if this was to be the case, Paul would then regard the shedding of his, his blood as a sort of sacrifice. And uh, perhaps as a libation or drink offering, which is the meaning of the Greek word translated here as offered. Paul wrote thus, Yea, if I be offered 
upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I join and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you join and rejoice with me. We know from the Old Testament, in particular for the, for the book of Numbers and uh, chapter 28, that there were drink offerings or libations made in conjunction with animal sacrifices. In Numbers 28 verses 7 to 10 we have these words. And the drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of a hymn for the one lamb. In the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. And the other lamb shalt thou offer even as the meat offering the morning and as the drink offering thereof. Thou shalt offer it a sacrifice made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And on the Sabbath day two lambs for the first year without spot, and two tent deals of flour for a meat offering, mingled with oil, and the drink offering thereof. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offerings. And there are further references to drink offerings later on in that same chapter. And so when we see Paul writing of his willingness to be offered upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of the Philippian saints, what is it to which he is referring? Well, it's been suggested that Paul was referring to the fact that he had been instrumental in bringing the saints of Philippi to faith, and that as such they could be likened to an offering acceptable to God, as we find it proposed in Romans 15 and verse 16. That verse reads thus. That I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And so Paul is very likely saying here in Philippians that if he is required to shed his blood for the cause of the Saviour, it could be considered as a sort of offering to accompany the offering up of the Gentiles, including the saints of Philippi. And Paul is also saying that he would be able to rejoice if that were to happen. I joy and rejoice with you all. And he wanted those saints of Philippi to be able to rejoice with him if he died for the cause of Christ. He wrote these words, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. You see, Paul didn't want those saints at Philippi to sorrow over much if one day they heard that he had lost his life because of his Christian service. Rather, he wanted them to be able to view his death as he himself would view it, as a libation to accompany the offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And here again we see, do we not the great concern that Paul had for those who have come to faith as a result of his ministry? He was more concerned for them than he was for himself. And we don't see that sort of thing very often, do we? Well, we come now to the remainder of the verses in Philippians 2, which tell us about two men. Two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And to start with, we're going to look at what we're told about Timothy. And we see, first of all, that Paul hoped to send Timothy to Philippi soon to see how they were getting on. Paul wrote this, but I trust in the Lord Jesus 
to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. And when Paul was trusting in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, he was indicating that he hoped that he would be allowed to do this in the will of God. As a matter of interest, I haven't been able to find out whether Timothy did eventually put it by again or not. In any event, we see how highly Paul thought of Timothy when he wrote these words. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Now in the original Greek, the word rendered here is like-minded is a word which means equally sensitive or equally concerned. And does it not indicate Therefore, that Timothy was as concerned for the saints at Philippi as was Paul. Just as a matter of interest, the New International Version translates it as, I have no one else like him, which isn't quite the same as it. Mm -hmm. Paul and Timothy were one in their care for the saints at Philippi, and it came naturally to both of them to think of others. But not all had that same unselfish concern, since others seemed only to be concerned about themselves. As Paul puts it, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. In our last study in Philippians, we looked at this request from Paul. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any vows and mercies, fulfil ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And in fact, Paul was now writing that those with him should not have been seeking their own things, but instead the things of Christ. And this raises another question for us, does it not? Just how much are we seeking our own things rather than Christ? Are our thoughts mainly about ourselves, what we can do for ourselves, or what we can do for the Saviour. Do we seek the things that are Christ? Well, Timothy did. And we see that Paul reminded the Philippian saints of Timothy's track record when he wrote these words to them. But ye know the proof, the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he has served with me in the Gospel. Timothy had been with Paul and others when Paul first visited Philippi. They had seen him in person as he accompanied Saul and or Paul rather, and the rest of Paul's company. He had served alongside Paul and the rest of that evangelistic band in Philippi, and thus would have been no stranger to the saints in that place. Timothy was obviously younger than Paul and seemed like a son to Paul as Paul laboured in his gospel work. Paul put it like this, but you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the Gospel. And isn't that a lovely expression? He has served with me in the Gospel. I wonder if we consider ourselves to have served with others in the Gospel. And if so, 
What is the truth of it? With whom did we serve? And what was our service? It would all become known on that great day, would it not? Now, as we, have, as we have observed more than once, Paul wasn't sure exactly what the future held for him. And he couldn't say for sure that he would send Timothy to Philippi until he knew what the future held for himself, which is why he wrote these words. Him, that's Timothy, therefore I hope to send presently as soon as I see how I shall see how it will go with me. And we also see that Paul had brought him returning to Philippi himself when he wrote these words. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Paul had his hopes and his aspirations, did he not? But he knew that he couldn't say for sure what was going to happen in the future. He knew that God was working out his purposes and he was content to see, as he put it, how it will go with me. And of course, in chapter 4 of the Epistle of James, we have that warning about making plans that may not be in the will of God. Mm. Verses 13 to 15 of that chapter read as follows Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appear for a little time and then vanish in the way. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. None of us can be absolutely certain as to what tomorrow holds. But now we come to the second character in these last verses of Philippians 2, Epaphroditus. This man had been sent to Paul in Rome by the Philippian saints to minister to Paul's needs. We shall study that aspect in, aspect in greater detail when we get to chapter 4. But in the meantime, I'll just refer you to verses 15 to 18 of that chapter, which read thus. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire to give, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And we shall consider that passage in greater detail when we come to it, but here we see Epaphroditus brought it to Paul, and now we see Paul sending him back to Philippi. Presumably, carrying this, this epistle, the epistle that was addressed to the saints of Philippi, Paul wrote thus, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labour and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. And you know, it will prepare us to briefly consider those five things which Paul wrote about Epaphroditus. We see that firstly, Paul called him his brother. His brother. Not a blood relative, but a brother in Christ, as are all those who are part of the family of God, including us here this evening. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Secondly, we think that Paul referred to Epaphroditus as a companion in labour or fellow worker, and thirdly, as a fellow soldier. And we thank God, do we not, that most of us are not required to labour and fight for Christ by ourselves alone, since God provides us with companions in our labours. Fourthly, we see Epaphroditus described as your messenger. Having been sent to Paul in Rome by the Philippians, he was their delegate. But it could also mean that Epaphroditus was an actual minister in his hometown of Philippi, even a preacher. But the Greek word translated here as messenger can have such a meaning. Fifthly and lastly, we see Epaphroditus described as he that ministered to my wants. Now, that's a lovely description, isn't it? And I imagine that Epaphroditus considered it a privilege to have been able to minister to Paul's needs. We can serve God, this is something very important, we can serve God by serving his servants. And are we not reminded here of what the king said, as we find it recorded in Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40, what the king said. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungry, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee an hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee, or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Wonderful words. Now, Epaphroditus, of course, wouldn't have been familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. It hadn't been written yet, but what he was familiar with was the fact that any believer should be doing what he should be doing if he or she has the opportunity to do so. And so I trust that we might take any opportunities that we have to minister to God's servants. Now one of the reasons why Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi was that somehow the saints of Philippi had become aware that Epaphroditus had contracted some sort of illness whilst at Rome. And this had upset Epaphroditus, and as well as being physically sick, he had also become a bit homesick. We know this because Paul wrote these words, For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because he had heard that he had been sick. Now, we don't know how the Philippine saints had found out that Epaphroditus had been unwell. Perhaps there were people travelling between Philippi and Rome who relayed messages. But notice that Epaphroditus seemed to be more concerned as to how his brethren in Philippi felt about his illness than he was. Hmm. He was sad because he knew that they would have been sad. 
And this displayed a loving concern for them, did it not? I wonder how many of us have ever felt like that when we've been ill. I suppose a parallel situation could arise today if someone was told that they were terminally ill and they were thus reluctant to tell their loved ones since they knew it would upset them more than they themselves were upset. Now we don't know what was wrong with Epaphroditus, but we do know that it was something serious. Paul wrote this for indeed, he was sick nigh unto death. Nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It was God himself who made the Epaphroditus well again, as it always is when someone is made well. Our health is in God's hands. Sometimes he might use physicians to make people better, Sometimes he will use those to whom he has given miraculous powers, as was often the case in New Testament times. And sometimes he will just intervene himself. I'm sure that people prayed for Epaphroditus' recovery and that God heard those prayers. But one interesting thing to note is that Paul didn't heal him. We're not told that Paul healed him. Now, we know that there was a time when Paul healed people. We can see this from Acts 28, Acts 28 verses 79, which read thus. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed, laid his hands on him, and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. So there's an example of Paul healing people. Do we have any reason to believe that Paul did lay his hands on his sick friend Epaphroditus, or did Paul no longer have the gift of healing? At the end of verse 27, we see that Paul related to how God had been merciful to him as well as to Epaphroditus. God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was already in a sorrowful state. He was in bonds, was he not? And if Epaphroditus had died, he would have been sadder still. But in his sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, his sorrow was diminished. For he wrote thus, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Paul was happy to send the Epaphroditus back, as he knew it would make the Philippian saints less sorrowful, as well as making himself less sorrowful. That was a win-win situation, we might say. And when Epaphroditus got back to Philippi, Paul wanted the saints there to welcome him joyfully and also to hold him in esteem on account of what he had suffered. He wrote this, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such a reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Epaphroditus had acted faithfully in all that he did, and we see that Paul attributed his near fatal illness to that faithful service. He hadn't counted his own life dear 
in his efforts to minister to Paul and perhaps to others in Rome. And we should know that Paul isn't criticising the saints at Philippi when he wrote of their lack of service. Rather, he is observing that Epaphroditus did what they were unable to do in the light of their distance from him. Now, was there ever a more wonderful testimony for anyone to be given than that which Paul gave of Epaphroditus? Because of the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Well, our time this evening has come to an end, and uh, as we come to a close, may we always hope to be as faithful a servant of God as Epaphroditus was. And let us remember that we as believers are to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God and daughters of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as the lights of the world. Amen. Amen.